we didn't actually introduce AJ at the beginning. Are you going to record something separately for that? Will you say my friend AJ? Blah, 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 as a I actually had not even picked up on that. I totally missed that we didn't introduce him. So that's a great thing, I think, to set up now. Let's do a quick outro and an intro. Okay, sounds good. Cool. Welcome to Holy Shit, I Have ADHD, a podcast about two writers discovering their neurodivergence in midlife. My name is Jordan Lane. I'm Robbie McDonald. And today our guest is AJ Candy. Uh, AJ is a UX designer originally from Montreal and now living and working in Calgary. AJ is someone I know through uh, the Kinkanauts, an improv group that we both belong to here in Calgary, Alberta. And uh, he has some similar work experiences to Robbie and I. Robbie and I both worked at iStock Photo, which very much had a kind of cool office with foosball tables and uh, dogs allowed and all that kind of stuff. And AJ worked in a very similar place. And what we've all discovered as ADHD people is in fact, these are terrible environments for our brains. How did you feel working in a place like that, Robbie? Hellscape, like just like constantly distracted and anxious and yeah. Even though I love the dogs, I love dogs, but how can you work when there's a dog in the room? You have to take care of the dog. <laughs> you you got to take care of the dog. And something that AJ talks about a lot that I thought was really interesting was um, the feeling of being watched. Um, there's something that ADHD people uh, use as a sort of productivity technique called body doubling. Um, Robbie, are you familiar with this? I think I have heard something about it, but unpack it a little bit more for me because I've been thinking a lot about that since our earlier yeah. conversation about it. So I don't understand it super well. Um, I've done very limited reading as well, but basically it's the idea of just having a friendly version of someone to keep an eye on you. So getting work done, if say you and I were, well, AJ was talking a lot in the interview about um, two or three people sharing a small closed door office. And that I think is, is an example of that kind of sort of positive influence of you've got some measure of accountability because you are in another room with someone and you're both there with the understanding that you're supposed to be getting work done. So, you know, the person may not watch you all the time, but they're definitely going to notice if you're spending all of your time on Zoopla looking at houses. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, so kind of there's a positive version of that, but then these open office environments that are so common lead to, I feel like, kind of the negative version of that, which is just feeling surveilled all the time. Mm. Yeah, and I think that is a is a huge anxiety. And now with our um, online constant life, I'm now understanding why um, it's so important sometimes to just turn your camera off on group calls. As an ADHD person, I didn't quite grasp that before, and now I really get it. It's because we can see, and for me with hearing loss too, there's captions on the meeting. I love it if I can see people's faces and I have captions, but. I don't want them to see me to feel so surveilled, right? Right. So in a way, um, and I know we don't get to talk about it too much with AJ, but I think that is something lots of folks are kind of coming across and that's where the Zoom fatigue comes in even more because it's like being in an open office, but you've literally got the whole office on Zoom looking to see that you haven't done your dishes or that your cat's in the background or whatever. So yeah, there's, there's a whole other level there, yeah. <laughs> what were we talking about? I just totally went off. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We were just talking about workplace, uh, workplaces, cool workplaces. Right. Yeah. So the cool workplace thing. And um, I, I really loved a lot of what AJ said about some of these like designs of the future mm -hmm. and how it is possible and provided the, the actual work culture is there to support them. Amazing. Right. You know, the same folks that I think 
excuse to be anti-work from home are also the ones that want to have Zoom calls six times a day. You know? They need the socializing. <laughs> they, need, they need the socializing, but they're also monitoring. They're also yeah. scrutinizing. They're also, you know, um, checking in and micromanaging too much, in my opinion. I agree. And that's something that I... I brought up during the interview is that I think that if we had seen uh, keystroke loggers and whatnot sooner in the development of computers, we never would have had open office plans. We could have done all the surveilling with uh, still big oaken office doors and a, a mahogany desk with an ashtray and a crystal decanter and all the other shit you used to have on your big desks. <laughs> yeah, the madman office, right? Yeah. I guess let's start then kind of um, at the diagnosis part. So, so kind of what, what was, I guess, was there like a catalyzing event that made you, um, think like, gosh, maybe I have ADHD or was it just sort of something that lingered for a while? Well, it had never really occurred to me because I think it was, um, in as much as like I had heard of it because, you know, it was still relatively a new diagnosis and it wasn't something that when I was growing up, I'm, I'm turning 50 next month. So, Holy shit, I wouldn't have guessed yeah. that. You look great. <laughs> I was going to say the same. Yeah. Whoa. I was basically uh, talking to a counselor about, like, um, issues I was having in a relationship and things like that. Um, and he noticed the way I would tend to switch from topic to topic and tangent to tangent and, like, speak very fast and uh, things like that. And he said, have you ever been tested for it? ADD, and I said, like, what? ADD? Isn't that something only dumb kids have? The kids in special ed? It's like, I didn't really know what it was. And I was like, that was just my mindset was like, I heard it was, you know, you know, there may be like be an ABC after school special about the misunderstood bullying, you know, like, um, something like that. Uh, and then I, I, then he walked me through like what the diagnosis was is like, Oh, well, do you, have you had this? Have you had this? Have you had this? It's like, yeah, well, you sounds like you might be a candidate. Mm. Um, it was problematic. It's a little bit, it really depends, uh, on, and this is just a sidetrack into, it's really hard to get, uh, adult ADD diagnosis unless you're covered or there's like your insurance plan covers it or, uh, there is a doctor in your region who does this sort of testing. I had to find a student psychiatrist who was doing their stage at, like, uh, sorry, in Quebecois terms, their uh, apprenticeship at McGill as part of the, at the uh, Wilder, uh, Wilder Penfield Institute there. And um, they did basically the standard, like, Wechsler scale, um, you know, typical kind of like are you you know to see if there's any uh brain damage or you do cognitive assessment and then the adult report which is basically have you done this and it's like the checklist of you know heuristics that they go down and say like well have you done this you've done this just have you had the problems like this yeah well it seems basically on your the answer to all the questions uh it sounds like you have adult add uh then after that it was obviously a challenge to find just to find a regular psychiatrist i mean thankfully in quebec they're covered by medicare mm. so i mean the the cost of seeing that but i couldn't really find someone to see me on a regular basis and to even you know uh, prescribe me anything or you know renew prescriptions became much easier when i moved to alberta uh, for what it's worth in that like your gp or even a pharmacist can prescribe stuff here uh, which is, you know, it, it really does vary by where you where you are. And this is, you know, I'm kind of lucky that I got as much insight as I did in Quebec. And I know other people have gone through similar sorts of trying to find adult testing for, you know, autism and things like that. And there's like 
one place in the eastern seaboard that does it and it's sixteen hundred dollars and like most a lot of people don't have that kind of money lying yeah. to to get that kind of test so uh it nowadays of course we know it's like it's a routine thing that they screen for in kids in grade school so that if they start mm-hmm. seeing things of those behaviors maybe they're diagnosing a little bit early but that's you know like that's a whole other topic but that was like me at age 40 uh coming across this and all of a sudden having like the blinders come off and realizing oh this explains everything why i did so poorly in math and why i dropped all those courses in university and why my first wife and i got divorced (laughs) and why we had all these arguments and uh why wine made things worse (laughs) (laughs) And, and why yeah. you probably used wine to try and make things feel better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, and on top of that, it was like the, the, the side disorders of discovering you have like sound sensitivity disorder, which is like, you know, mm. certain sounds that just literally trigger your fight or flight response. And wow. It's irrational, but it's like, you know, it's not goes beyond like, oh, I wish you would chew with your mouth closed. It's more like chew with your mouth closed or I will kill you. <laughs> Please. Um, because that's the sort of like the thing it triggers. And okay, so it was growing up, it was a huge source of tension in my family because, you know, uh, it was be at the dinner table. It just felt like everyone eating in silence and all you could hear. And it felt like you might as well have been you know, like had headphones on with that sound magnified being blasted into yeah. your ears. And it was like, no one could understand what I was going through because it wasn't a thing you could have. It wasn't an understood mm. thing, you know? So, and like, you know, they just presumed I was acting up, you know, so that was, that was kind of like, in, in retrospect, all of these sort of things of like, you know, trying to stim sort of in certain ways of like trying, trying to like maintain focus or the ways that I would hyper focus on certain subjects that I would do super well in. And then other ones where like I had to go to summer school every year, pretty much through high school <laughs> to get my math stuff done just because... Oh, yeah, which is weird because, like, I like math as concepts, you know, like, I love mathematical concepts and, like, the, the beauty of an explaining of it. But you show me the uh, the equation on the board and it's like trying to read sight music, sight read music if you don't know how to do that. It's like this, I, no, I can't, I panic, no. So that was, you know, again, a source of great, great tension. And you always wonder, I think. You know, I think it's the great regret that a lot of people have once they hit is like, I wish I'd been diagnosed earlier because I might have gotten a handle on certain things. Of course, you can't, you know, uh, undo the past. It just is what it is. But, you know, the later you go through that, you realize, oh, there is also then the sense of like, I have to make up for lost decades, you know, so... Well, that's, that's a conversation that Robbie and I have had before, and the phrase that I used, and I've used this a bunch, uh, it's funny, even before, I, even before I, I understood myself as ADHD, I had used this phrase a bunch about myself in the last couple of years, just because of, like, I've just been kind of branching out and trying a lot of new things, but uh, I kind of feel like, in a lot of ways, I've lived half a life, um, because I haven't been able to achieve in some ways that I know I have and, and, you know, um, follow through in activities and relationships and all kinds of spheres of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Find- I've been using the term grief a lot lately. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's, it, it is real. Uh, yeah. That feeling of, uh, of having missed out. Um, but then wanting to move forward in a more empowered way too. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a strange place to be. Um, but AJ, you like, so for five years now, you've known about this, and 
10. 10, 10, 10, 10. Oh, right. Yeah. Because yeah, you're, yeah, I keep, you look 45. Maybe that's why I keep doing this. Um, with that. Um, <laughs> I, I only say that to sense that like, you know, in this, in the, the length of time that I've, I've known Jordan, which is about at least like four years. I mean, like we've been just sort of in different circles at the Kinkanauts. So we haven't really uh, hung out in, in bulk amounts of time, but in that sense of like, by, since I moved to Calgary, I like, you know, that was, uh, I had, I'm not going to say I had it all buckled away. I still struggle with it. And sometimes it is, you know, still an issue, but, um, I was like such a different person by the time I got here and met people that like, you didn't know me before. And so mm. there's that aspect of it, but that's all Ooh. I meant by that. Sorry. I interrupted. Mm. I it's okay. Cause I'm also just going to go on off on a different thread because when I moved to Vancouver eight years ago it was a starting fresh for me because you know I had all these ideas and whatnot but I I think that may have been sort of the path towards this as well Mm -hmm. and yeah when you go to a new city you oh you almost inevitably have an opportunity to redefine yourself right because it's a whole new community that you're joining and you can start fresh right Um, and so that seems like that would be a very empowering place to be for you. Yeah. I mean, it's um, certainly, I think it's one of those things where you can go in and start new things and know, you know, okay, if I start something, I'm going to need someone to help me finish this because I mm. start it and then abandon it, which is uh, oddly why I think I like improv more than other things. Yes. Is that like, it's, I, I, it's weird. Even when I was in a band and like writing music with uh, the, my uh, co-songwriter friend, um, it would be easier for me to be a, like a catalyst co-contributor. I would never start something from scratch. I'd be more like, oh, I have an idea for that. I have an idea for that. Yeah. Um, and we would be a great collaboration team versus yes. um, a genius on your own. And that's why it's so hard to start things on your own, in a sense, unless you like start and devote time to it every day and, and or connect with regular people to give you that grounding to say like, am I... Uh, is this working? Is this okay? Which brings us back to the, I think it was something that you both touched on is um, you get the sense of, I mean, like the imposter syndrome thing is strong enough in creative yeah. people <laughs> who does anything and like wants to get ahead and is like, I don't know if I'm good enough for this, or I don't know if I have the skills to be a manager or whatever. And but the thing is, like, was it me or was it the ADD? Or like <laughs> on top of that, and then um constantly thinking that oh it's creeping out again and but the fact of like there's a lot of pe- people especially the, there might be managers who have a, or like collaborators or co- people you work with that just have a very hands-off style and don't give you a lot of feedback mm. i find i need a lot of feedback not necessarily that i need a lot of praise although that's nice but i i remember working with uh, a late uh manager friend of mine about like 20 years ago and he was always giving me good feedback even he would do me you know do the sandwich and put the bad stuff in the middle of the good mm-hmm. but it, it helped me feel like oh okay i know where i stand with everything and in other yeah. places it's like nobody's emailed me all week are they going to fire me what's going on I, I had a very, very similar experience. So um, Robbie and I talked about our burnouts a little bit on the first episode. So the feedback thing, um, I didn't burn out for the first 13 years I was in my job because 
every manager I had gave me detailed and prompt responses to my questions when I would ask for additional information. And I recognize now as part of ADHD that I have trouble sometimes filtering out what is and isn't relevant information. So I I can be annoying and want too much information and too much granularity about a lot of things. But I always had management that was willing to give me that. And that was a big part of my burnout was uh, very long responses on things that I felt were important. Um, And then also getting these vague, short answers without anywhere near the level of detail that I wanted. Mm. Yeah. How did that make you feel? (laughs) <laughs> shitty well yeah like I, I, I literally same thing as you basically I would get I would get feedback first thing in the morning about all the things that I fucked up the day before which is again now I recognize as the literal worst possible way for an ADHD person to start their work day is by getting like negative feedback from mm-hmm. this person in, now, in a position you can't, of authority the rest of your day is consumed yes. with like uh, doom yes you know? uh, and then but the biggest thing though was just like not hearing back on important stuff for like a week and a half two weeks sometimes where this is like things that are external uh, deadlines and it's like I need this information to do what I need to do to continue with this and I can't go forward with this or at least I feel like mentally there's a block where I can't go forward and that's Mm. probably part of ADHD but yeah and I'm you know I'm reflecting on my most recent experience at a nonprofit, and they were doing sort of a redefinition of their values statements shortly after I started there and in the top five was must be comfortable with ambiguity. <laughs> and, and so I don't even know if I, knowing what I know now, I would never apply for that job because I do appreciate that clarity of knowing exactly what needs to be done, yeah. what the deadline is and yeah, what what's needed, right? Um, and so I spent a lot of my time struggling in that job because people would sometimes take a week or two to answer my emails because they didn't know what the bleep was going on and they were afraid to tell me the wrong thing. So they would just tell me nothing and I would flail around and literally shoot like, 10 unnecessary videos for a project that wasn't even going forward and waste all this time right so um yeah it really is uh, amazing to think back on that and to think like knowing what I know now how things might have been different and and the imposter syndrome piece mm. I remember that so well at iStock Jordan because <laughs> there was all these incredible, creative, talented people in an open office space doing amazing things, right? And I would sit there going, what the fuck am I doing here? Like at any moment now, someone's going to send me an email going, get your shit, you're out, you know? (laughs) Maybe in the boardroom. Yeah, maybe in the boardroom. Well, and and that did end up happening for, you know, various reasons. But I think I spent, you know, probably the last few months that I was there, definitely feeling super intimidated by the big brains of all the people around me. And, you know, where you work, AJ, in UX design, like, you know, you've done all this, like, really cool stuff, right? And you mentioned imposter syndrome. But of course, when I look at your profile on your website, it's you seem to have a mastery of your craft, <laughs> right? Well, it's, you know, it's, thank you for saying that. That's very nice. And one, like, Yay, like one person visited my website this year. I don't really go out of my way to, you know, like promote it or anything. And uh, mostly I just get email through the form saying like, you know, do you need help getting Facebook followers? Yeah, same. Yeah. Same. Yeah, Even though, totally. you know, thanks, thanks, like, you know, a kismet spam plugin. Um, but it's, uh, 
It is interesting because I, I, in a weird sense, just to talk about UX specifically, I mean, for those uh, listening who don't know what that is, user experience design is essentially like compu- what we used to call computer, human computer interface design, mm. or in other, other terms, interaction design. And of course, there's always a, a slight sort of tribal war over like, which is, which is the appropriate term or who does what. Uh, and employers these days like try and get a, a twofer by saying we need someone who's like a back-end Java programmer who also does user experience. It's like, wow, that's like finding an elephant with wings. I, I wish you luck. It's like those some people out there do exist, but you're not going to get them for under two hundred thousand dollars a year. So mm-hmm. good luck. Because um, that's very, 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 very special set of skills. Skills that make them a nightmare for people like them to manage in the salary sense. Um, hmm. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I find the, the hyper-focus aspect of, a, of ADD, which is really, you know, attention difference. It's not a deficit. Mm. It's not like, oh, I can't pay attention. It's more like I'm very selective or my brain is very selective about what it pays attention to, as is a, a deficit of dopamine in the sense it will go to something shiny because it's like, oh, I'm the shiny thing. Oh, Twitter, having a conversation with someone and like, uh, or doing improv in front of a crowd, a huge amount of dopamine, great yeah. instant feedback. You know instantly if they like it or they hate it. <laughs> There's no ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas like high ambiguity, long feedback, um, you know, stuff like, but necessary stuff like doing your taxes or your laundry <laughs> or cooking for yourself versus hitting skip the dishes or, you know, I'll just play one more level in this video game. Um, because it's more stimulating than, you know, other stuff. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff you can say about retraining your brain to learn to like boring stuff again. There's a guy mm-hmm. who has a really interesting video on YouTube about that. Um, and it's hard because it really is sort of like, how do you detox your brain from dopamine? But of course, why the reason we take stimulant meds or why they're prescribed is that they sort of are supposed to make up for that lack of dopamine. Mm-hmm. So that being said, so in user experience, you know, you're basically following and trying to imagine what a user is going to do when they see this interface. Like, where are they going to go? What button are they going to hit? Is this button too small? Is it the wrong color? Is the wording ambiguous? And you start to learn how people think that aren't like you. Mm. So it's a real exercise in not just empathy, but being able to sort of predict, okay, someone of this background will probably not be able to figure this out. This is too computer easy for them, or this is too IT admin-esque for them. Uh, If they are an IT admin, they need a different interface. And like kind of the company I work for now is like we actually build uh, admin software for IT administrators. So a lot of Mm. it's very highly technical and very dense. It's the opposite of like the clean, lean iOS app that for consumers. Um, But, you know, there's parts of it where you think, well, why couldn't it be just as easy as that? So the the hyper-focus ability comes in when you're able to kind of see ahead of time where it's going to fail. And the problem is always like, how do you communicate this to other people who just program this already without asking you? And you have to say, no, you have to throw that away now and undo it because this is, this is, uh, this is unusable. Or you find out years later, you, you end up um, building up technical debt for some reason. And um, it becomes really hard to unprogram the way an interface is designed because it's rooted very deeply into the old spaghetti code of, of a system. Um, and so, like, trying to make an improvement on it is uh, you 
need to have a, a very strong reason. Like all of a sudden, one of our uh, clients would come back to us saying, we need to be ADA compliant, mm, uh, mm. Uh, Americans with Disabilities Act compliant. And like there are have been lawsuits in the States about if your website isn't ADA compliant for mm. uh, blind users, if everything doesn't have alt text in it, or if there isn't an alternate method of navigation, like if you can't use keyboard navigation or a, a switch control or something, then you're in violation. You could get sued. Right. And it's costing companies money. So we had uh, a client come and say, like, please try using the software with the voiceover on your Mac turned on. And it was horrible. And so we had mm -hmm. to crash redo everything to make uh -huh. it you know, or at least the public facing side of it, you know, actually compliant. And that's one of those things, like if you're descending from scratch, uh, if you'd had somebody in from the beginning, yeah. you know, then you say like, well, that would have been taken care of, but this was done ages ago and we didn't know it was, a, they didn't know it was a thing then. So it's mm. kind of, what, what strikes me as an interesting kind of analog is um, just, you know, if they had made the decision, however many decades ago to put the C train underground in Calgary, instead of on the surface level. And it's just like, that's, that's one, that's one choice, one binary choice that they made decades ago that has had so many ramifications for every aspect of how shitty it is to get around the city, especially as a public transit user. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing. I mean, obviously in any sort of like engineering decision, you can say, well, we're going to make this trade off now. Um, when it comes to hard built environment, it's really expensive to do that software less so, but yeah. you can still end up accruing a lot of that sort of, well, you know, we'll just leave this overpass up until it falls down and then replace it like they did in Montreal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> they had to have a crash program to replace a bridge and the entire Turcotte interchange, which is almost done now. But it was like, when, I remember the last time I went back and it looked kind of like, you know, uh, Middle East war zone, you know, of patched concrete <laughs> and rebar sticking out. And it's like, wow, this is really bad. Especially coming back from Alberta where our roads are relatively amazing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. being a very driving oriented city. So. And I'm just going to sit here and be all smug in Vancouver because we have this elevated sky train and oh, all these right. other, you know. Montreal's <laughs> getting one now, the uh, the REM, the Réseau Électrique Montréal, I think. So it's, an, it's like the sky train. It's completely automated. Hmm. And it will go to the airport finally nice. after 60 years. Right. It is so fast to get to the airport in Vancouver. It's almost embarrassing. It takes like 20 minutes from our old place. We would just hop on the sky train and it's, you know. The SkyTrain price, it's a little more expensive. But I remember that in Calgary, getting to the airport was a thing. Better now, but not not great still. Yeah. Yeah. There was that bus, that random bus that went out there. Yes. I remember seeing photos of Nenshi the mayor taking the new bus. So to the, it was like a big thing on the front of the Calgary Herald. Woohoo! You don't have to spend 80 bucks to get to the airport. Right <laughs> on. <laughs> See, isn't this interesting? It's like, this is something I find oddly almost uniform is like people uh, friends of mine who are like a little bit on the asperger spectrum and or have add we love systems and mm. we love transit systems and graphic design well <laughs> wayfinding it's like it's organized it's nice it's for me wonderful. it's typographies one and then databases are the other um and that's something where like just just figuring out how to database everything, especially now that I know that I have ADHD. Um, I'm just like databasing every aspect of my life and dumping it all to my phone calendar and scheduling myself within an inch of my life. And it's really yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be nice I've, I've been inspired by that, Jordan. I'm like trying, you know, I've been using my Google calendar more, but I'm still double booking myself <laughs> when I'm not even all that busy. I don't know how I do it. I just like my concept of time is so, yeah. yeah. 
do you got? Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have touched on the topic of time blindness, but it's something mm. I came across through uh, Renee Brooks, who does like a, a Black Girl Lost Keys. I love her. I've been following her on Twitter. I'm like fangirling all over her. I want to have her on the show. Yeah, you guys <laughs> have both wonderful. talked about it. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, talk about that because that's. I know that uh, Robbie and I've talked a little bit about time elasticity, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. This is definitely, I mean, it's definitely, I notice it more on the days I forget to take my meds, mm. but it is definitely that, it is that sense of focus and sense of time going by where you get really into something and, you know, it's true even for neurotypical people of like, the more you're having fun or engaged in something, the less the time seems to matter. Yeah. But, you know, you're in a waiting room or you're on a layover in an airport, it's like, oh my God, it takes forever. Mm. Although I'm the kind of person that just can zone out and find my own fun. So like, I don't get impatient. I know other people that do. But in the sense of time blindness and like, how long does it actually take me to do a task? And it's like, not like I have a guy in some sort of, you know, who's that guy? Like Taylor, Taylorism, the guy who used to go in 19th century factories and talk yeah. to everybody. So mm. what I did do is like from uh, Renee Brooks's uh, web store, I bought one of these little visual timers. So it's basically, you know, a kitchen timer, but it the way the dial is designed is that it gives you a visual, like a pie chart that's counting down. Mm. You can just look at it and it's it does a little ding when it's done, which is nice. And you can get iOS apps or an Android apps that do the same thing. I got a really nice one called Multi-Timer, which is great for kitchen tasks because if you have mm. to do multi-tasks, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, quite nice for that. Yeah, I accidentally care. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, just to finish up, it was like the more I actually set a time box on things saying I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to do this and whatever's done at the end of 30 minutes is what it is. And that really sort of it's starting to change the way I look at time because like I know my brain will not keep track. It's not synced to the universal clock. So, yeah, it's like alarms, but also just having something... The, the out of sight, out of mind aspect to it, like if you don't have a clock right there, it's very easy to ignore the little one on the side of your screen right. because it's so tiny. You know, it's it's nicely well designed and out of the way, but <laughs> sometimes you want a big countdown clock like on CNN. Right, yeah. Like every day is New Year's Eve. The ball's yes. going to drop at right. 4.49. Woo, work's over. Yeah, that'd be nice. So a couple of things I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit here. Um Something I'm curious about that you mentioned way up top was about uh, when your counselor was talking to you about kind of these symptoms that uh, he noticed, um, the fast talking thing. So that was something that was super interesting for me because I had never really thought about that too much. Um, Of course, it's now obvious that I talk as fast as I do because I'm racing to get my thoughts out before they disappear. Um, But I just there was one time I remember in particular where I felt so fucking shitty and ashamed about how fast I talk. Uh, I was in Seattle and uh, had lost my, I'd left my phone in the back of a cab. And so I was on the phone um, the next morning with uh, the dispatch company or, or the cab company leaving a message with the dispatcher trying to get a hold of my wallet. And so of course I'm in a bit of a panic and I must have fucking been talking like a million miles an hour. And anyway, so the guy called me back later and it was this super pissed off like American guy. And he's like, I never heard anyone talk as fucking fast as you. I had to listen to that message seven times. I had to start that message over seven times to write down the information that you were trying to get out. And I just like, I just listened to this with just like, you know, getting madder and madder, but verbally just like, yes, I know I talk really fast. 
I'm sorry I made your job harder. Thank you for assisting me. I need my phone. I need to get back to Canada tomorrow. Like, you know, so I'm kind of like, thank you, sir. May I have another? Also, fuck you down to hell and back. Like... <laughs> I really wonder if that was like an East Coast versus West Coast thing. Like if that had happened in New York, they would have been like, yeah, no problem. We can do it right away. Hey. What? It's weird. Here. I, I feel like my experience with Americans is that they are they, like Americans are happy to help you. They will go that extra mile yeah. to do the thing, but they'll make you feel like an asshole the whole time for needing the help. <laughs> really, though. It is an odd. I mean. It really depends on who it is and where. Like, you know, <laughs> a small town transplant to a big city will give treated differently than a native. Sure. But even then, mm -hmm. after a while, it's like, yeah, I'll do this to you because I'm a good citizen and I don't want you to think, well, everyone in New York is a, is a, a big a-hole. But it's at the same time, it's like, now I got stuff to do. Go. Go away. Do your thing. Right. Uh, and, you know, other places. Like, uh, it really... It was a long time ago. There's there's a book called um, I think it was called The Art of Slow, and it was all about you know sort of the slow movement, like slow food, mm -hmm. slow culture, slow cities, and you know to some extent, if you've seen the there's a really good documentary series on TVO called The Life Size City, mm -hmm. with a Canadian Danish urbanist called uh, uh, Michaela Colville Anderson, and it's all about you know. Again, back to urbanism, you know, you, we love those walkable areas and the idea of like doing things at a human pace as opposed to being rushing around and doing things at machine pace because we're still in this hangover from the industrial revolution of speed equals productivity. Uh, when nowadays often it could be like it takes me maybe like three days to think about which button to press, but it's knowing which button to press is the important thing. Right. Um, mm. As opposed to like how many grommets can we shoot out the, the widget machine? Uh, per hour productivity, which is kind of like this old school method of, of measuring it. And so this idea of a speed culture, like, you know, why do we people, why do people get road rage so much? It's like, ah, it's like the mm. place you're going to will still be there unless like you are in a medical emergency or a police officer chasing somebody or something. Um, calm the F down. It's like, you're going to be, you'll, you'll still be there. And that's but, something I think we, we I, I, I've struggled with that. I mean, I struggle with impatience at times, obviously, but it's mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that things are still going to be there on the other side and we're conditioned sort of out of the gate to have everything be a sense of urgency, yeah. whether it's just going to get a cup of coffee or a meeting. And I think that's, that's made people quite intolerant of other people on the road. And that's like the whole road rage piece. And, I wrote a book about that way back in the day and I was, I don't even drive and I was just shocked <laughs> at how people were treating each other just, you know, over trying to get from point A to point B, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I love this idea of, of moving slower and being more intentional and paying yeah. um, courtesy and kindness to the people mm. around us. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, both of you can probably speak to this because this is something I'm still struggling with, but there's that idea of the mind-body duality. And um, so if you went to Catholic school, you certainly got that. Um, the idea that like, it's very easy to live in your head. Beginning improvisers, especially if they come from like a very wordy word balance side, they will do a lot of improv from up in their head. Yep. And um, being connected to the body is like very, uh, very like something you have to work at. And like, I know it's yes. kind of interesting because now that you've, you're delving into this fashion thing, that's an extremely body focused 
um, thing. And I know a lot of people are just like, my, my body is a way for my head to go to meetings. It carries around, you know, I don't really worry too much about it as long as it's not broken. Yeah. You know, and, but I think that's the sort of thing. Uh, it was a very interesting, like, side page in the book Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, where it's the odd way that we project outwards from ourselves into the object around us. And it's kind of like why comic books work. But when you're driving, if you get into an accident, you say, he hit me. You don't say, he hit my car with his car, which mm. is what actually happened. Right. Because <laughs> mm. we, we tend to now project, the car is me. It's my yes. mm-hmm. carapace, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we, we have this odd sort of a blurry boundary about where our body starts and ends. And I think that's kind of like where, uh, i got to go someplace really fast. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting, I want to talk about the mind-body connection thing, because I've talked a tiny bit about this. I want to talk more at length about it. But, Robbie, I'm curious to know first, um, kind of, did you have a similar experience of kind of, like, feeling disconnected or, or living in your head? Oh, absolutely. And that's something I'm I'm circling back to after uh, kind of dancing around um, Buddhism and mindfulness for, jeez, mm. now, I'm going to say Since it, I almost, met you. 15 years, yeah, at least, that I've been exploring this stuff. You know, I went to see the Dalai Lama in Calgary at the Saddle Dome, which I don't recommend. <laughs> that was bizarre. Um, and, you know, joined a Buddhist collective. The first things I started Googling in uh, Vancouver were um, Buddhist communities recovery, Buddhist communities like East Vancouver, and, and that's where I ended up finding one that I stuck with for a while. Um, but I'm still always with the mental chatter and going on retreats I would dread going on these retreats for three days where we would be in silence where um, we would be sitting on our cushions having these you know supposed uh, interior safaris we would call them there was all kinds of names for it but it was hell for me and I and I could never quite understand why you know people talked about oh that was so blissful and I feel so connected (laughs) and I would just be like I'm fucking hungry I don't like the food like there's no protein and everything has garlic and god and I just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there right but now I'm starting to realize just the value of that um slowing down and listening to my body and and how it is almost always um, an alert of something else that's going on that needs to be addressed. Like if I'm upset, it's in my stomach. Um, I get headaches when I'm really stressed out, um, when I'm really worried and anxious, headaches, same thing. So yeah, the the mind-body thing uh, is is such a huge part of this, but it's also, uh, it's so, it's so, complicated because I keep coming across these articles saying oh if you have ADD or ADHD um, meditation just don't even try and I'm like but Mm. I I still want to try and I still want to connect to my body and I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that as well AJ Um, because we have talked about this Jordan like where meditation is really tough but I've been learning more and more through people like John Kabat-Zinn that even though it's tough you need to keep doing it Mm because it is a practice and and now I've dropped the idea that any of it is going to be blissful and that helps that is, <laughs> I don't expect really myself like, go ahead yeah. I, no that that's excellent because it's um, so much of it is sold as 
uh, like it's some sort of spa day relaxing, mm. like there'll be a waterfall and coconut milk and, you know, and monkeys will be in the hot springs. And, mm. um, but then you have to go back to your job on Monday and it's like, it's not so relaxing. <laughs> no, I think there's, there's alternate ways to get to that. And like two, two ways, and this is going to sound oddly contradictory to the whole, like, you know, get out of your mind sense. Um, it's kind of interesting. The Greek, the Greek root of the word ecstasy is ecstasis, which means to stand outside yourself. That's really what ecstatic means. It means I'm outside myself at this moment. And beside now, yourself. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, there's that sense of like um, when you lose yourself and it could be in performance. I find like when you're in a really good physical performance and you're synced with a partner so either in dance or in theater or in improv. Dance especially I think is probably over or like underrated as a kind of a therapy or as a, a tool to like get in touch with your body. The odd thing that I would suggest and this is by no means like scientifically tested but um, there's a growing genre of video games that are not, you know, action oriented. In fact, they're sort of, you know, unaction oriented where it's really more about enjoying the moment and experiencing an environment. And you, again, in that cartoon sense, you project yourself into this very simplified character on screen, which is your avatar. You know, again, a term from, from Hindu, Hinduism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like a, uh, there's a very interesting game uh, that came out a couple of years ago called Abzu, which is basically you, you're a diver in an ocean. And there is sort of a storyline to it about, oh, there's something poisoning the ocean, but um, no spoilers. But it's generally you basically go around and you can like get your character to fold up and like uh, sit cross-legged on a rock at the bottom of a grotto and then just sort of become the fish mm. one by one. And uh, cool. there's some an experimental video game called Everything where literally you just sort of are a little dot of light and as you drop through the the world, like you drop on a bird, you become the bird. You drop on the tree, you become the tree. You drop Mm. on the squirrel on the tree, you become the squirrel. So you get this interesting way of like becoming all these other things and being outside yourself. And so there's this very meditative game. Sometimes they're called walking simulators. And sometimes they have a puzzle aspect to them. Okay, I've heard that term. Where it's really kind of, some of them are just a linear story that you're walking through and experiencing it almost like an interactive movie. Um, there was one called uh, Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, which came from, out from a British studio called The Chinese Room a couple of years ago. It's really amazing. A very kind of almost Lovecraftian sci-fi story mm-hmm. set in this 1970s British village, which is recreated to amazing detail, and you can just walk around in it. So it's a really, like, in, in as much as, like, you sense you are there, then you're not where you are. So you're outside Mm. yourself. And I think those kind of experiences can be shaped in a way that actually can give you like actual catharsis. There's a lot of games. Uh, Rhyme is another one. It looks like a puzzle platformer, but it has a really amazing and uh, very touching story uh, in it that you only really discover what it is at the end. Mm. And then it will break your heart. So uh, minor spoiler, but (laughs) It is very well worth playing. It's that idea of like, oh, I thought this was a video game, but then it starts to actually mirror my mental state as or the mental state of the character the further you go into it. Um, and everything becomes symbolism as opposed to a literal, a literal, you know, object in the world. So there's something going on. And I find that that, that can be as meditative as anything else. So that sounds like, um, at least the video games end of it, helps you with kind of like, uh, kind of slowing down your thoughts or maybe kind of being more present in your senses. Um, and then I'm curious if there's like, 
are there things that kind of um, helped you get more in touch with like your physical body or, or has that been like a thing for you? I think like getting out in the world has been really good. I mean, I've been meaning to take up dance <laughs> just as a general sort of stagecraft thing. Um, yeah. I've found that it's kind of odd in, in talking to like my other um, collaborators in Alacrity. It's like there's often a sense that we feel more like ourselves on stage than we do in real life. Mm. So when we're up there, especially in the physical sense, in the sense that you have to connect to a partner, you have to make eye contact, you have to be right. physically aware of what they're doing which is a little harder to do over Zoom these days, although we try. <laughs> um, but it's, that is, it's a very highly structured form of play. And in as much so, then it's sort of like, it's a safe space to explore things in, in, in like, I'm going to be this character for a while. I'm going to have these weird ideas and we're going to see where this goes. And um, in front of an audience <laughs> sometimes. So uh, I felt that, I mean, Generally speaking, yeah, sure. I mean, I think especially after this last year, we all want to get outside more, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm definitely not a camper, though. It's like I would like to go to, to the country, but I want to stay in a five-star hotel. So <laughs> Bam Springs Hotel and look at the falls nice. from the balcony. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go ahead, Robbie. Uh, we did camping last year because that was, you know, the option available to us. And, right. um yeah, no, I, I don't think that's something I want to continue doing, even though I, you know, invested in a foamy and all this stuff. I, I, I was like injured at coming back. I got stung by a wasp. I got a UTI. I got a little bit of a Oh, geez. Oh, yeah, it was just horrid. Horrible. From, horrible. from the wasp? And it was supposed to be this like quiet, like, you know, lovely place. And then it just got overrun by city kids with loud music, like on the last night. <laughs> I'm like, this is the opposite of being in the wilderness peace. Like, it was so stressful. Don't please, recommend, please unless you your, like that kind of thing. Take your fire festival elsewhere, please. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'll never do Burning Man. Sorry, I, I, yeah, I'm too hygienic. I can't I, cope. I know people who love it and go every year, and they were, like, really sad when they couldn't go. And the same thing, I, I, my thing was South by Southwest. Because mm. it's, you know, it's a lot of stimulation in a, in, a, in a week, and you get to meet lots of people you only know on the Internet, see famous people occasionally, and talk to mm. them or ask Q&As and things like that. And there's running water and there's, you know, <laughs> not bacteria <laughs> crawling all over me. Yeah. And really good barbecue. And really but good barbecue. Yeah, is, Austin's so much fun. Yeah, It is. It is. Um, I, I do enjoy going to conferences. I mean, th I've been very lucky not to get conference plague, but I know people who do. And like this Conference year, plague? Yeah. No, I mean, um, one of my voiceover coaches is, uh, you know, he does the conference circuit partly, you know, because he gets to, you know, speak on panels. You get paid to do that and, you know, sell your merch at the merch table. You know, mm -hmm. it's a way you supplement your income and pay the mortgage and all that. And it's all good. Uh, but it's like when you're in line to sign this, there's these helper elves who come up to, with, with like gallon jugs of sanitizer playing sanitize your hands. please. <laughs> Because this is even pre-COVID, right? Yeah, this is pre-COVID because, you know, yeah. all you need is like some bug from some city you haven't been to and some mutant strain of something. And then you're, if your voice work, you literally can't work, you know, as opposed to, you know, yeah. you could just type, I guess, without talking to people. But 
So yeah, what, uh, what were you going to bring up there? Sorry, we. Well, no, of- that's okay. I, I was just I was going all the way back to the mind body thing. Um, that was something that really kind of has started to turn for me, and since probably 2017 or so. Uh, when I started lifting weights, but really in the last uh, year, especially um, is kind of like uh, part of it is, is, as you say, conceptualizing of yourself as a vehicle to cart your brain around in for the most part. Um, but yeah, that's something that like the more I'm finding these ways to be present in my body, that really kind of helps me to get some of those uh, spiral thought trains and some of this other stuff under control a lot faster. And specifically the things that I found, one for sure was dance. Um, I did that uh, coming out of improv. Uh, Jason said something like, you'll always have the like word end of it and the smart end of it. That's never going away. So like figure out other things to do with yourself now. It's like, okay, yeah. So I went and like, okay, so how do I get more into my body? So I tried dance. That was cool. And two more that were really kind of unusual, but worked well, um, that my counselor put me on to were, uh, walking around barefoot as much as I can. Um, so on my lunch break at work, I would just like walk down to, uh, the river and just like walk, down in Inglewood, just along the river there, my bare feet in the grass. And then the other one was eating with my hands as much as possible. Uh, part of that is because my phone's not in my hands, right? So that's like, that's important. And then also just, yeah, having that direct kind of like sensory input and engaging with your hands and all of your senses at the same time. It's actually, I, I came to really enjoy it. And especially just like eating citrus fruits, <laughs> getting really messy with it. So but don't take the citrus fruits at the same time as the concerta. We talked about this, right? Because no. vitamin C and citrus fruits, when you take them with a lot of the meds for um, ADD, ADHD, um, they actually will um, kind of force the Leech meds it. to leave your body sooner than than you want them to. Interesting. Um, so I've started eating oranges in the evening when I used to eat them in the morning. Um, yeah, Fiber, that's fiber just is it. also a, a thing that does that. Is like it will actually flush out any meds that you're like long-term meds. So mm. metamucil or if you have like huh. fiber cereal, apparently that just bonds to all the meds and flushes them out. Oh my goodness! Oh, that's really good. Because I've been having oatmeal lately. Oh, I guess I better go back to just having some sort of like protein brick Can that have doesn't have bacon <laughs> and eggs every morning now, Robbie. <laughs> As a vegetarian, that might be hard, but the eggs, yeah, maybe get back on the eggs. That would be good. Although the appetite thing, I'm sure you're both aware of that too. It does tend to just make you not hungry and then you're starving. Yeah. The, the binge quality of it. Um, like I will forget to eat and I will forget to drink and then lunchtime will come a little late and then I will do the terrible thing and order too much food on skip the dishes and it's not great food but i'll be like ah and then the rest of the afternoon i'm like why do i feel like this? <laughs> <clears throat> and then oh yeah because i did the thing i shouldn't have done the thing i knew i wouldn't i shouldn't have done the thing but i did it so you know that's a very cause and effect uh, aspect of that on the note of contraindications for anyone out there who is on SSRIs, do not mm. mix it with dextromethorphan because you will get serotonin syndrome, which can kill you. I have not heard of this serotonin syndrome. Oh, yeah. AJ, why don't you tell us about that? Mm. Okay. Well, I discovered this when um, I had just started on um, basically just Wellbutrin, like generic bupropion. I don't know how it's pronounced. It's an odd number of syllables. Uh, Will Butrin is the, is the commercial name for it. Um, and it's an SSRI, which basically means a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It stops your brain from digesting serotonin so that you still have a little bit more in your brain so that it levels out your moods. Mm. The problem is 
dextromethorphan, which is the ingredient in a lot of cough remedies like nighttime NyQuil uh, and a lot of those certain kinds of neocitrin, like they're not all the same, the formula for very, there's different formulas, so do check the package. Uh, Dextromethorphan has uh, an effect that's also like that. And I think that's kind of like why it helps you sleep to some extent. Mm -hmm. It's like that. Doxycycline, I don't think that actually contributes as much, but dextromethorphan in combination with that will raise the serotonin level in your bloodstream to a toxic point. And you will start feeling like you're having a heart attack a little bit. Like you'll start racing. You'll start feeling incredibly thirsty. Uh, you'll get really hot. Your heart will start racing. And I started feeling this at work and I thought, am I having the flu is what's, what's going on. And I, went across the street to the uh thankfully work right across from a shopper's drug mart talk to the pharmacist and say like what what do you want it's like well i'm i get my meds from you you can check that out yeah oh you have this and like if you had like um and did you have you taken any other meds lately it's like well i took like you know nyquil uh this morning because i have a cold and they said oh no don't do that And they, then they explained, so they gave me the little one sheet on serotonin syndrome. And I think they probably told me about this, like when they, you know, when they give you a first yeah, prescription totally. and they walk you through the, that, but they don't actually walk you through. And I think that's a pretty common contraindication, especially if you live in a cold mm. country, you're going to be taking cold meds at some point. So mm. listeners beware, this is just, you may save a life. I just realized I took a nighttime Buckley's maybe two or three weeks ago because I was feeling like ass and I thought oh okay so this will just help me sleep for the night because sometimes the meds I have difficulty sleeping if it was Buckley's and, DM that has dextromethorphan in it okay so, so yes, that may well have been the case yikes okay so Ooh. uh no more of that because <laughs> uh, that's something I'm always kind of on high alert to these days too it's like I actually have a shoebox in the, in um, our bathroom filled with all the different magic bullet things that I've bought, like all these different supplements and things that I've spent an embarrassing amount of money on. And I'm now I'm just like afraid to take anything in, in tandem with the Concerta other than ashwagandha in the evening to help mm. me kind of wind down. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there's this box of all this stuff, right, that was supposedly going to help me. And I feel like there's... Um, and I don't, I want to be careful about saying this, but there is definitely a culture online of, you know, um, magic bullets, um, you know, supplements and things that you can take. And I know people want to do things naturally, but I think that there's, there could be danger there, right? Like real danger if you're, if you're combining these things. Oh, absolutely. And if you haven't, you know, you may have an unknown allergy as well that can compound mm-hmm. that. About, I think the only thing that is known to be, uh, kind of good it's just like you know omega-3s and vitamin d and Mm -hmm. especially i think in this last year of being indoors too much we've all been missing the amount of the natural vitamin d so i mean if there's one generic sort of vitamin i would say that's probably good for for this it would be that uh i don't think there's any huge interactions or contraindications although you know maybe with other meds but i think generally speaking if Mm -hmm. there's one you would want to take to help with things that would be the one um this actually i'm wondering if um if you want to talk a little bit too because jordan has touched on this as well like i think there's there is often you know like with the the comorbidities right like you may be often and this was my experience misdiagnosed um with say anxiety or depression or those things were the result of undiagnosed um add adhd and then the medications don't function the way that 
they're intended, right? And because it might be that your brain chemistry isn't needing that, it's needing something else. Did you have that experience at all or did you just? I think I was, I was pretty lucky in that um, it was pretty much a, a, kind of just a classic case. Like there were not a lot of comorbidities. Um, I mean, the sound sensitivity stuff is not something I think you can treat with meds. It's really just something you live with. And I think mm-hmm. to some extent, certain kind of drugs help with that. But that's, you know, uh, it's really just down to your, your internal wiring. So that's not something that meds can easily target. Um, I think there were definitely... The one sort of like bad issue I had is like when I was first uh, on, it wasn't Concerta, but just straight up Ritalin. And then I would find that, you know, it has a very sharp tail off. Mm. And so at four o'clock, I found myself in the roaming a Canadian tire looking for something and feeling like I was going to cry for no reason. <laughs> and I realized, oh, no, I'm just tired and I haven't eaten anything. But this is really making it worse because all of a sudden all this stuff that the Ritalin and, and, and pushing back all of a sudden came back. That's actually why I started on well, butrin was a way to actually manage that tail off and then oh. also switching to Concerta as a way to like put out a measured dose. So I wasn't having to take a pill every three hours. It was more like, this is something that will last you, uh, you know, 12 hours or eight hours. Um, about the only change that ever happened was a slight increase in prescription, but I'm still on a moderately low dose. So, um, I think the only thing I really have to worry about is just like drinking too much coffee late in the afternoon because mm-hmm. that just screws it all up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of like getting misdiagnosed, I've been lucky. Like I know people that try a bit of everything and then they finally find the thing that works for them or they, they're on something for a while and then it stops working. And it's just the nature of certain kinds of psychiatric medications. It's like you build up a tolerance or your brain paths change over time with plasticity. Um, I don't know if you guys both saw um, Gary Goldman's comedy special, uh, The Great Depression, which is on HBO. If you have Crave with like HBO Movies Plus, by the way, I'm not paid to promote them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Gary Goldman is just a, a really a hilarious comedian. Um, you can find his work on the Spotify and other places. But this was his, his comedy special specifically about depression. It's sort of done half as a stand-up special, half as like a look into like how he came, became uh, diagnosed and how he deals mm. with it and how he eventually like, it's like, no great spoilers, like, you know, he goes through all these things and it's almost a bit like a coming out story where he realizes I don't want to be this person that society says I should be like society says, because I'm a six foot tall, uh, you know, built looking guy that I should play football, but I really just want to do decoupage. So, you know, he still stays fit and like exercise helps, but like the thing that finally helped him in the end was, um, electroconvulsive therapy, which is, you know, it sounds very old school, but it's something that actually helped him because it started like zapping his brain into feeling good. And it's, you know, after try, having tried any lists off an entire alphabet's worth of, of prescription drugs has been, had been on or is on uh, at various times, antipsychotics and, you know, every, everything from one thing to the other and various, you know, stints in inpatient treatment and things like that. And, um, hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to spoil it further, but say like, do watch it because it's, it's really good. There's also a, a short clip of like, I think they do a little panel discussion after I think the premiere with uh, Patton Oswalt and hmm. Maria Bamford. And uh, I believe the special was directed by Judd Apatow and he sort hmm. of moderates wow. it. Yeah. But it's like both of them have been talking about their issues with mental hmm. health 
uh, Maria Bamford especially because I think she had like a special like her own series all about that like what yeah yeah and I loved that series in particular I don't know if either of you saw that comedians of comedy tour uh, doc that came out probably close to 15 years ago now with her and Hossein just like her singing those fucking anxiety songs into the payphone was it just cracked me up because I saw so much of myself and again I don't I didn't recognize any of this stuff at the time as me being neurodivergent but it's like oh most people don't like walk around singing their live to tape thought process like that's not actually a thing that people go through life doing for the most part but that's like that's just literally kind of how I live my life is I don't even realize I'm doing it walking around fucking make singing the dishes washing song while I'm washing dishes. Got to scrub this dish. This dish center will be scrubbed. I'm going to put it away in the drying rack. Now I'm going to pick up another dish. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Uh, so speaking of, of, of creativity, uh, I want to talk about improv at some point, but also... Before we get into that, we're coming up on an hour here already, and we haven't really touched on work environment stuff. Um, so we talked a little bit about you, uh, your experience from the UX design angle and kind of like information environments, I guess. Um, but yeah, how do you feel about telling us a little bit about your burnout experience and about we can the three of us commiserate about cool offices? Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it is. It is really interesting in that. Um, if you, I guess it's an oddly kind of a side process of if you like design, you start looking at architecture. And if you start looking at architecture, you start looking at interiors. Mm. Like we all have a Pinterest board full of cool <laughs> interiors and Werner Panton furniture and environmentscapes and things like that from, from those hedonistic uh, utopian 60s period <laughs> of experimentation. With like what is a room, man? What, what <laughs> is a room? It's a room. Could it just be like a bunch of trampolines? Maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you really. The, but it's it's. I guess it goes again with the the pattern recognition overdrive aspect that stipulates our dopamine is that you really recognize when things are wrong. It's hard to define when things are right, but it's very mm-hmm. easy to prescribe a fix for the thing that's wrong. And the thing that's wrong in most offices is you know you have a lack of privacy. There's too much noise. Uh, the surfaces are untreated, so there's like hard echoes. Uh, there's no culture of quiet. Um, and I could talk a little bit about that. I mean, like so the specific burnout experience, I was working at a large uh, creative agency in Montreal. Uh, wonderful people, mostly. And, uh, you know, a bit of a, like an ad agency industry, hard partying attitude among some people and like others were, you know, um, it was very waterfall process of like, you guys do your thing and throw it over the wall. And once it's done, it's done. You can't fix it because there's no budget. So it was very, very <laughs> old school kind of way of thinking of, of project stuff, which was frustrating to begin with. And it was in uh, mostly like one floor of an office building in the middle of the Plateau Montréal. It was like in a typical 70s office building. It was mostly, you know, Ikea desks and some makeshift partitions and things like that. And then, you know, the company got a little bit of investment. They decided, well, we need, you know, this space isn't working for us anymore. We need to have something that works better. Um, And so what they ended up doing was... Uh, and, you know, I, having taken it on myself, like this is also went back from previous jobs I'd worked in open office environments that with, you know, trying to have creative people team next to the sales team who are on the phone all day long and someone else who was like someone who had never worked in an office before and didn't understand inside voice 
And at this new place, there was also someone who did not understand the inside voice who would yell across 17 rows of cubicles while it's like, I'm trying to concentrate here and now it's going to take me 45 minutes to get back on my train of thought. You've now cost the company $200, so please pay me. Uh, and it's partly like, again, it goes back to how do we quantify productivity? And part mm. of it is um, the trend in open office space has never actually been the proven scientifically that it's more productive. In fact, the only thing you ever find after a long like review of all the literature is that there's a lot of self-supporting statements from office furniture companies that say it increases productivity. And like, there's no claim to back that up, but there's plenty of claims in the opposite and scientific studies done that show that it actually ruins productivity because of all the interruptions and like the cost of recovering your train of thought from an interruption, even for a neurotypical person, is about 20 to 45 minutes to get back into the the flow the flow wow. state of what it was you were doing when you get interrupted which is why people guard their their time you know like like bandits uh if you really manage your time well it's like manage your time like bandits because the minute you give it away that means you're not giving it to the thing you you think you really should be doing uh so the company got this money and what did they do? And, and like having read up a bit on the, on the, you know, what's probably a good thing to do and being a creative guy. And I had the ear of the CEO a little bit and I went to him and talked to him and I said, like, you know, the thing that we really help people concentrate is like, you know, if there's soft surfaces, we, we fix this thing about, you know, putting carpets. I know they're a little bit hard to manage. It's Quebec, it's the winter, there's slush, et cetera, whatever. But you need to acoustically dampen the environment so that people can feel like they have a safe space to converse. There's gotta be some sort of visual barriers. People should have some sort of like visual sunlight. I mean, we had windows all around the office. And what I would have done is like, you know, put the desks facing the windows. So like you could rest your eyes by looking off at Mount Royal, which would have been wonderful. Instead, they basically got, did nothing to do any acoustic treatment whatsoever. They got this contract furniture to replace all the random Ikea desks into these, we derisively called them the sweatshop sewing machine desks. They were just long benches with like piping and wiring down the middle and like the sort of slat wall stuff to hang arms, like computer bonded arms off of. We were all way closer together. So it was like the equivalent of going from 1960s air travel to 2000s air travel. Jesus. If you've ever seen a photograph of a 747 from the, the old days where it's like you're in an armchair, it feels like you're in some sort of like, you know, you've got space for one and a half people for yourself and it's mm, comfortable. And a martini. Yes. and leg well, See, that's interesting because I was just about to say it, it's also kind of a jump from like basically 1960s offices to 2000 offices. And then I was going to say, or it's like going from Don Draper to being one of the gals in the typing pool. And that <laughs> made me think of like, holy shit, how fucked is it that we put the people in the typing pool who probably need more so than the boardroom guys that quiet to get their shit done out in the same room all with each other? <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that sort of typing pool plan, I don't know how you know common it was. I mean, I've, uh, in researching this, I mean, you can go back to seeing some portrayals of 19th century, like, accountants' offices where the scribes were all basically at long tables scrivening away, scrivenering, scribing. <laughs> anyway. Um, and then later, um, most famously, probably like Frank Lloyd Wright's offices for Johnson Wax with that beautiful, the wonderful thing about it was that it had a high ceiling and it was almost was like a concrete forest and you almost had like a canopy of light that came through. It was like being on the savanna in a way. And you had like little places you could go to like peek out and peek in and be seen and not seen. But yeah, there was still that idea of the central typing pool and desks in long rows and arrangements was very common. And 
in a sense, the, the, like when the computer came along, everyone became their own typist. <laughs> no, no longer, you know, maybe nowadays if you're an executive, you have an assistant who does that sort of stuff. But most of the time, it's like you type your own stuff. And that's kind of made us all a little more harried in a way. Uh, not to say that we need to bring back the typing pool per se, but, you know, maybe maybe the, the computer can smartly dictate or something mm. or take dictation. Uh but there was a difference. Like the most interesting thing is like when companies actually took the time to study productivity and what was needed, they ended up with very different office spaces. Um, uh, Bell Labs had this huge, you know, almost legendary office campus in, I believe it was New Jersey, and the building, you know, it had a central fountain, lots of air, it was almost like a giant atrium. But people were basically given their own closed offices because they knew that you have to do a lot of, this is intellect work, this is thinking work, you need to be able to concentrate. So at most, like, you share a closed office with one or two people, um, you like your colleagues on your team, perhaps, but you could close the door and have a conversation and not disturb anybody. And if you needed to go out and do some blue sky whiteboarding, there was a separate room for that. And or you could just do it in your office if you just need to do it on your own. But like, it's like there's that idea of there's the thinking space and then there's the shared creativity or collaboration space. And the problem is we've now expanded the collaboration space to be everything, thinking that mm. we'll just make everything more collaborative. It's like, <laughs> but I don't want to collaborate right now. I want to think. I have to write this letter. And I, you know, and people have lots of, you know, other things that they need to do. So in, in essence, it's like you've eliminated the ability to task switch from people. And that's the sort of thing. People can know, like, when my task is done, then I can switch and go into this mode. I have a meeting, and I'm, we're going to go into a blue sky mode of thinking. It'll take me a little while to like, ramp up into it, and then we get into that mode of collaboration. Same thing we do in improv. It's like it takes us, even if we're experienced improvisers, we still need to warm up. Sure. some do some like one, two, three, whatever, uh, just to get our brains in the right mode. And like switching from solo creativity into uh, presentation or collaborative mode is is actually like a different mode of thinking. And the space that you're in promotes or demotes that kind of thinking. Um, so on that level, there was, there's a really good book um, by two guys from the Atlantic Systems Guild or like the old school systems thinking consultancy. Uh, and the book is called Peopleware, and it's not about, you know, software, it's about people and, like, why things happen. And there's a whole great section in it called The Furniture Police about how, you know, people say for cost reasons we're going to impose the same desk layout on everyone mm. and even to some cases, you know, telling you what you can and can't have on your desk. <laughs> Like you may have one framed photo of your family, and that is it. Put everything in your drawer at the end of the day. Do not, do not deviate. <laughs> then they played a practical joke and replaced the, the photo of the family, saying your family does not meet corporate standards. Not attractive enough. Um, but yeah, but to that sense of like when when the company actually invests the time to understand what people need to work, then they design things very differently. So. Um, in the early 2000s, IBM and Steelcase came together, and they, they tried to put a lot of this learning into practice with something called Blue Space. Never really became commercialized, but it was basically kind of like a larger cubicle on steroids that could turn into an open, like you could flip a partition open and have it, like mm -hmm. I'm in open meeting mode, come by anytime, or I'm in closed pod mode. Um, I have a little Pico projector above my desk, so I don't need to clutter it up with a monitor. When I need to share stuff, I can just you know, project on the wall here when I need to, um, when I need to share with other people as opposed to everyone crowding around my, my laptop right. or something. 
Um, and in other cases, like some people always point to Pixar and Pixar has like, oh, they have a big open office and they do that. Yeah, they do. But when it comes down to the crucial stuff, like doing micro editing on animations, if you've ever seen a documentary about that, where like Brad Bird is talking to an animator, they're in these things called the beach huts, which are little literal shacks, you know, with tiki decorations on them and a red light like this inside because it helps you concentrate a low ceiling and red light helps you concentrate on the task in front of you. It's this weird Mm. kind of. Uh, thing that happens and just to sort of touch on the literature just a little bit more um, the other book that I found that was really good about this was called Place Advantage by uh, Dr. Sally Agustin and it's all about kind of the application of psychology to environments and in a little bit it touches on like Evo Psych which I'm always a little bit wary of rightfully (laughs) but it does sort of touch on this thing of like um, there was this interesting concept that she put forward called uh, prospect and refuge Prospect means the ability to see. Refuge is the ability to not be seen. Mm-hmm. And if you ever think about, if you've ever been to like Spain and you've seen those kind of like, sh- uh, like almost like Venetian blinded little balconies where you can see out, but the people can't see you. Or why we have like the sort of sunscreen type shades in our windows here where I can see out, but people can't see in when there's daylight out. And that idea, we enjoy that a lot. It's sort of as an evolutionary thing. It's almost like being up in a tree looking down and saying, yeah. well, the, the tiger's not going to get me today. Or like a hunting um, blind. Yeah. Mm. And we we love, like, you know, like little kids, we instinctively love the idea of, like, I'm going to build a fort with a little view thing so I can see <laughs> outside. And, you know, why aren't offices like that? Because this is something that we naturally kind of enjoy. And, you know, what, what I think um, from that that would be a really wonderful kind of um, – hybrid office space would be if you imagine like a really giant greenhouse i mean not that it would be like a bakingly hot inside but something that has a lot of natural light but almost like a large atrium kind of thing and imagine an amphitheater but instead of um almost a bit like imagine you know like the private boxes in a stadium mm-hmm. like you know when you have like the, the upper ones for the roof now imagine all of those were just surround this amphitheater and there's like a water feature and there's like greenery and it's sort of a central area in the middle of it so you can look at something nice there's white noise, natural white noise coming from a waterfall. So you're not really hearing noise from everyone else. And you have your own little kind of almost like a, a reverse cubicle that looks out over over right. the top of your desk, out into that thing. And there's an avenue in front of you where you can always see people coming. No one ever creeps up on you from behind. Mm. And behind you is sort of a shelter. So like if you want to retreat into it and say, I'm in closed pod mode, I need to concentrate. But then I can open it up again and be like, I mean, right. open come by anytime in chat mode and then there's other kinds of spaces like that are more open flexible creative spaces that you can repurpose to do whatever you need but you kind of want to have a kind of home base that you feel safe in where you kind of feel like i can see and not be seen i have that kind of like sense of dappled light coming through leaves because humans love that we just love that um and when you address those human needs those kind of weird unspoken human needs the environment starts to become different. Culture is also a big thing. Um, and just to close that off really quickly is, um, if you know the company, uh, they used to be known as 37 Signals. Now they're just known as Basecamp after their main product, Basecamp, right. the product productivity software, project management software. And most of their team works remotely. Uh, the people that do WordPress also are like this. They have a large team. Most of them all work remotely and they get together when they need to. So they have an office, uh, Automatic has an office in Chicago, and what they have is what they call library rules. Everything is carpeted. 
We have like separate little closed glass offices for when we need to take phone calls. There's phone booths. Uh, smart technologies offices here had things like that too. So it was a very mm-hmm. library culture. So there's that idea of there's somebody working, don't disturb them. And like, if you need to disturb them, ask first or ping them, send them a chat message or something. Say like, hey, can we talk about this if it's not urgent, you know? Um, so there's an idea of like really respecting other people's time and not wanting to interrupt them with notifications. Um, or even just physical space that, like, you're constantly seeing someone in your space, like, doing something that annoys you just out of the corner of your eye. Like, your peripheral vision is really sensitive to motion. So, like, someone's, like, yeah. chewing gum just outside mm-hmm. of your You really see the chewing gum. And it's like, I have to put another monitor there. <laughs> ended up being my coping strategy before I left. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of it. It's like there's this there's a lot that people could do, but it's also, it goes against kind of like, again, the trends are driven by economics because real estate is expensive, office space expensive. You want to maximize the space. Um, Office furniture is leased mostly. So it's for some reason kind of a tax rate off as well. So nobody really wants to invest in permanent stuff when they could have these sort of El Cheapo desks that are, you know, just kind of again sweatshop benches where everyone has to share the space based on something that was in a management magazine from three to 30 years right. ago, you know, as opposed to anything proven. So that's kind of where we're at. It's yeah. Like you, you were, there's a lot of received wisdom that isn't based in, in fact that, you know, it's going to take a, a long it, it takes like individual businesses who have the choice about what kind of an office space they want and knowing what the needs of those workers are. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. there is always the need to collaborate for sure, but it's like either you can have an open office space with library rules or you can't have an open office space because yes. the minute somebody breaks the commons, it becomes the tragedy of the commons. It's ruined for everybody. Um, so I kind of want to touch, I want to talk about that for a sec, because something that you mentioned uh, that I thought was interesting was kind of that idea of everybody having their own space with their back to the wall, so to speak, looking out on a larger sort of vaulted central area. Um, and I think that that's interesting because, um, so a couple things, number one, uh, I thought it was interesting that you kind of, your I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a difference. Maybe I'm just a more cynical person, but kind of like your, um, one of the reasons that you were talking about companies wanting to do these kinds of layouts was the perception of encouraging collaboration or cooperation between employees. Um, I see it more as a lens of like the panopticon basically, and trying to make sure that everybody's in fact doing the thing. And what I actually think is really interesting is that I think if computer software had developed faster, I think if we had had things like keystroke loggers and this sort of remote productivity uh, guaranteeing software first, we never would have got open office plans because they would have been able to track everybody in their offices on their own Mm. computers. Well, yeah, that goes back to I, I was going to touch on that because, yeah, it is very much the command and control. I need to be able to see you, but you shouldn't see me, the manager who's, like, you know, standing over you. As long, But it, it sort of lends itself to kind of a theater of productivity. It's like, look, I'm typing. Look at me, I'm typing, 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 typing. It's just like I'm chopping vegetables at the beginning of a scene. Uh, and I'm singing while I'm doing it. But, um, yeah, it's the... The sense that you're being watched, it actually just adds to your stress. Yes. It isn't uh, like what actually kind of works is like when you're in a pair 
uh, or like you know a three pod or something says something and you're collaborating on something saying hey do you think this is right well, like let's let's work at this and a manager's role is really just to clear the roadblocks for you and not to say like oh you're not typing enough you know i mean in computer programming like if i can do in one line of code what a poor programmer needs 27 lines of code to do typing more code doesn't make it more eff- efficient you know so the way we measure productivity has to change in a sense especially you know, if it's not in a raw output sense of like we're putting out cubic meters of coal, you know, per hour, like that's one way to measure productivity. But the other thing is like, are you doing, are you being effective at your job? Are, are you making a difference? Is your software quality improving over time? Is, is the collaboration of your team with another team improving over time? Like there's a lot of different metrics you can choose to use. Um, and I think that's the other thing is like, yeah, we are, we still have this hangover of 19th century factory Taylorism. Fordist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, there just isn't, you know, a, even a computerized way. I mean, I read recently, this was something I thought about a long time ago. Like, you know, we have this mood sensing headbands or like, saying, oh, what kind of mode are you in? Are you in alpha wave or delta wave? And then I heard that some Chinese company was going to issue these mandatorily to all employees to be able to track, like, are they concentrating on their task or not? Now, I would think that would be interesting if you wanted to establish a baseline of what people's like natural, you know, if, if it was even scientifically valid, I don't know that it is, but the idea of like, oh, certain people in a certain kind of task tend to drift certain days because they put something on the back burner, think about it unconsciously for a while and then come back to it later. Or other people are just steady and solid. I will do this task until it's done. Yeah. To people. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, yes, yeah, I, 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 no, I feel like I'm very much in the former camp where what I, what I largely understood as procrastination my whole life, I'm now kind of seeing through this different lens of like, some of it's procrastination because I don't want to start things. But part of it is that I'm also, I'm really doing this stuff in my head. And that's especially true for me with writing is like, I've been writing this column all week. And really what I've been doing is not typing a fucking word and just like, but I know exactly where it's going to go. And this thing is due tomorrow morning. So I'm going to, after this call, sit down and write that. And it's going to be a pain in the ass and stressful, but I've kind of been working on it for a long time already. You know what I mean? Exactly. No, I do. I do know exactly. I think a lot of, as an ADD thing, a lot of what looks like inactivity is actually just sort of like we're processing. This is going on to like a lower priority thread on the CPU and like (laughs) deal with something that's on the front burner, you know, that requires more attention right now at this very second. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think that is the thing that we have to know. Like if we're going to be working in a knowledge environment, we have to understand how the brain works. We have to understand how cognition works. And like, again, it's like as a UX designer, you have to understand cognition. It's part of like, why, how do people identify things? How do people see things? How do people scan? Is that true of all cultures? Like what if they read the right to left versus left to right? Or, you know, do they read vertically? Or does this color symbolize, does red always symbolize danger? Or does it symbolize something else in another culture? You have to take all of these factors and put them and say like, okay, for this typical user in this context, will this make sense? it's kind of interesting because as, as a discipline, it evolved out of something called industrial psychology. And that was in back in the days of mechanical controls of trying to uh, figure out how to not lose your arm in a machine at a factory by f- locating the stop button as easily mm. as you could. Mm. 
And in fact, like in, in UX design, we have this thing called Fitz's Law about, a, it was a designer called Fitz. And it was back in the day of those kind of control panels that like um, the furthest you should be able to go is like where the button should be. Like when you reach out your arm and you stop, put the button there. And mm. that's kind of like why we, we put the controls on our desktops into the corners because like the furthest you can go and then the mouse stops, that's where it should be. As opposed to trying to be precise about hitting this thing somewhere in the middle. Huh, that's so interesting. Harder. Yeah. I'm just looking at the corners of my monitor here now and like, <laughs> oh yeah, shit, loading different apps. Like, oh, look at that. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's literally because of Fitz's law that, that, that stuff is there. And the second next best place to put something is right under the pointer, which is why you have contextual menus. So that's, you know, don't make it a hard thing of like trying to oh, be precise enough. You want to, it's basically, you know, almost like an accessibility thing of like, make it easy for people. Don't make them climb steps, give them a ramp. A ramp works for everybody. As long as it's not like 45 degrees, right? You know, so you know th that's the, a lot of it is about like when you make something easier for part of the population, it becomes easier for everybody. Yeah, and so that's kind of like where the accessibility aspect of it comes back, and you start to realize as someone with an invisible disability that you do need, you know, kind of uh, supports. And then high five, virtual high five. <laughs> we'll so just raising our hand in recognition. I, I yeah, that was a recognition because I'm 50% deaf. So, right, and that's um, actually all those one spaces of the, are, are are horror for me that that you've been describing. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to loop in specifically you, Robbie. I wanted you to talk about uh, the hard surfaces and the reflections thing that AJ was talking about. Hmm. Um, do you mind if I just speak to something else yeah. first because it's just been like really at the front of my mind um, when AJ, when you're talking about design and, and in my most recent experience, the building was designed in a way that should have actually been um, really healthy in the sense that, um, you know, um, it was kind of like semi-circular and everyone more or less had their own office, except for, you know, folks in the downstairs, like where I was located upstairs was, you know, technically kind of an ADHD paradise in the sense that I had my own office. But the culture of the place was such that a closed door meant fuck all. So mm -hmm. even if my door was closed, people would just barge into my office and nobody would ping me or do anything to let me know beforehand. So um, I think that, yeah, those things need to kind of work together in concert. You know, it'd be great to have an office where... Um, I think I, I interviewed an animator once, and I can't remember the name of the animation studio here in Vancouver, but they had something very similar to what you described. And then they had this kind of um, like a, an open theater space and a kitchen and everything, but everyone, it was really quiet in there. It was amazing, right? Um, and so those, it seemed like they were really, and it, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of it, um, but it seems like they really took care of their people. So, even if the building is designed in such a way that is, is um, sounds almost like a utopia, if the work culture is super hierarchical and top down where you're allowed to be interrupted day in and day out, then that's not helpful either. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to speak to that because I actually yeah. felt myself getting triggered at how much rage I would feel when literally people would just like walk into my office with a closed door and sometimes the blinds would be closed. Like how much more obtuse can you be? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Like to the triggering point, like uh, the, at the worst point in the old office where I left, it was like I was at the junction of two rows, like a row and a, and a column sort of thing in the office, right where the printer was. And so everyone stopped by and chatted by the printer. Mm. And 
I got very stabby. I didn't stab anyone, thankfully, <laughs> but I might have. Um, yeah, and I just eventually realized I was grinding my teeth at night and it was becoming terrible. And I realized, you know, um, I was going to go leave and start my own freelance business. And I did that mm. for a while, which had its own challenges. But <laughs> it was like mm-hmm. I felt so much better not having to go into that environment. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a huge release for me when um, when that all ended in June. But, I mean, I had been working remotely since March, and that was a, a, was lovely but also stressful because um, nobody was using captions at that point, so it was really mm-hmm. hard for me to hear a lot of my colleagues who had really shitty Internet connections and, like, you know, awful. Um, but coming back to what, you're, what you were pointing to, uh, Jordan, about the hard services, and um, have you guys ever been to Taco Fino? In Vancouver and Gastown? Uh, ages yeah. ago. Okay. It is hell for somebody like me because it is all hard spaces and like stabby corners and like Tile. weird lights and super high ceilings. And there's nothing soft except for the food. Like it's brutal. And I had some friends in from out of town. That's where they wanted to be. So we went there. This was like two years ago or something. And I was almost in tears. Like I couldn't hear shit because it was just so loud. And I remember that now um, in retrospect, Jordan, like at, at iStock, the, the the first office before it moved into the super happy fun house building yes. was very much like that. It was the brush concrete floors. It was all those like long cobbled together desks and um, things constantly clattering like if somebody dropped a pen or anything yes. like that. It was, it was really hard. And now that my hearing is the way that it is, um, I'm, I'm just so... Uh, keenly aware now of spaces that have not thought at all about sound. Um, And, you know, everywhere from like the Atlantic to the New York Times to, um, you know, the Herald, they've been talking about this for years. Like a lot of spaces are are actually dangerous now. They're so loud. Mm, And I think that open office spaces would be included in that. You know, the constant chatter, like, you know, like the sales guy, like, hey, you know, like yelling across the thing. Oh, well, you know, um, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll put a metric on it in that I, I got a, you know, DB meter app for my phone and I held it up at that office during the loudest part of the day, which was like, it peaked at several different times, but this was like an average lap time. And it was something like over 90 DB. Yeah. Holy God. shit. Which is like, you know, 110 is a jet engine. I was going to say, yeah. Jesus. And if, I mean, it's, it depends on how you measure DB because DB is a logarithmic. I'm going to say it goes so up like logarithmically, so it's not a direct is, translation. Yeah. It's like a power of 10, but it's like... Uh, a lot louder than your typical household vacuum cleaner or like power tools. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very much, it was super loud. Um, I mean, it'd be kind of like being in the New York city subway with like, you know, steel on wheels of steel on rails and people Mm -hmm. yelling or whatever, all at the same time. In fact, probably the inside of a subway car in New York is quieter because no one's talking all the time. Because everyone's on their phone. <laughs> yeah, or like, you know, quietly reading, doing stuff because like, don't bother me, please don't kill me. So a quick check. Apparently 90 decibels is about a gas mower, give or take. Yeah. Wow. That's, and yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be like hitting deadlines and being efficient and doing all your thing. Well, there's a lawnmower literally like roaring across your desk. Goodness. Yeah. Right. Insert sound effect here for your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> what is this like? Please turn your radio down now. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, 
but to the to the ear down, I think you know even in a quiet office, if you want to, you know, and what you end up doing is like I would end up using Bose noise canceling headphones, mm. which sort of reduce things to a dull roar because they can't predict everything. Mm-hmm. But then I'd start cranking up music to, to block stuff out, mm-hmm. and th- th- I think I almost damaged my hearing doing that. And that comes in my experience with its own set of focus problems. Um, Because, yeah, same thing. It was just I was plunked right near not only the front desk and elevator bank, but also the coffee machine. And so it was just like prime distractibility, not only from a noise perspective, but also just I'm friends with everyone and I want to say what's up to everybody. Uh, So, yeah, so it would be like, okay, same thing, literally Bose noise canceling headphones and then just like listening to music that I, I couldn't even listen to ambient music because there wasn't enough stuff going on to create enough sort of white noise to block out conversations or whatever. So I would have to listen to more aggressively timbred music, which was not at all conducive to me getting work done. <laughs> it's like, there's only so many it's times a day you can bop out to like new order, you know, it's like, <laughs> concentrating on my work, singing, this singing the work concentration song. Exactly. Yeah. Construction time again, Depeche Mode. Um, <laughs> no, it was odd because, like, the more I think back to when I worked retail, it was almost like all of those things that would be horrible in an office environment were a plus because, oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. come on in and let me solve your problem for you. I got this thing and I got this thing and with capital T and that stands for trouble and that's <laughs> down three other departments. And it was really great because it was high speed and a lot of stimulation and like, hey, mm-hmm. it's my buddy from this band and somebody or other. I mean, I used to work at Steve's Music in Montreal. That was like the, my longest running retail. No job. shit. I have a Steve's Music t-shirt around somewhere. Wow. Sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah. It's like three stores. I don't know if they have all three stores still open, but it's really funny. I used to work at, at the old location in old Montreal, the big original one, and that they since moved up to St. Catherine Street uh, to a sort of a different place uh, closer to University of Quebec at Montreal. But that was like the classic thing of it was a row of uh, old pawn shops that had been drilled through to basically create an interior store. And I'm sure the place was was so full of cardboard dust from packages that it would light on fire if you looked at it wrong. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, it was it was it's incredible. It was like a bunch of stories of like, you know, these characters because the people in the music business are not entirely all there all the time, <laughs> you know, in a, in, a, in a positive sense because they're super creative. But, sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was, there was a time when I, like, I was like basically spending everything I earned there on gear because I was in a band at the time, mm-hmm. but it was really great just to, you had the stimulation of like knowing stuff and learning about stuff and then also getting to tell that to people to help them buy stuff. So that's like that ideal kind of help desky kind of interaction yep. of like, I want to mm-hmm. be able to help you and have this be a positive interaction. That's like almost like the best sort of thing. And it's short enough that you don't have to. I'm going to go away and like three weeks later, forget to email you about this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's self-contained. Self-contained. And this is actually, I'm just going to shout out here. This is not an ad in any way, but yesterday when I bought this mic, I met a lovely gentleman named Zach at Henry's cameras who, as it turns out, also has ADHD. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he was a total star. Cause he's like, okay, let's make sure we get you the right thing. And he was like on it. And then we were talking about cameras and he, he ended up telling me like half his story. So Zach, if you end up listening to this, thank you again for your help. And I'm sure, um, you're doing lots of good things in the world, but yeah, I think the retail and the service environment, I was a server for years before I got into writing full-time because it's that the, the interactions are so immediate and you can see immediate results as well. Like, it's like, oh, you're enjoying your drink. Great. I can move on to this next thing. And yeah, I'm not waiting three weeks to get 
feedback that could be crazy yeah. making. Yeah. It, you know, almost to, to loop almost back around to the question you asked at the beginning, Jordan, it was like, you know, what triggered this? It was like, mm-hmm. in an essence, like the fact that an ADHD brain craves dopamine, or at least a, a generally speaking, a standard ADD person craves dopamine. We will crave dopamine even from negative interactions, but interactions with people are the things that give us yes. the most dopamine. So we, we do stuff to, to kind of like maximize our, our abilities to have interactions, either that or like we get burned out and be like, I need to be alone. Mm. You know, you have that kind of like introvert, extrovert pull yeah. push. I mean, I would say I'm probably an ambivert. I appear to be, you know, but like my wife is the opposite. She's very much someone who has to kind of like ration out her social energy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the time she's done it, it's like, I need to go home. Right. You know, and it's not because she doesn't want to be there. It's just like she has her, her ability to do that. And a lot of people are like that. But yeah, I think that is when it came down to like, why am I starting fights in my mind with people I don't even know? I'm having imaginary fights in my mind. I'm imaginary karate fights on an imaginary subway because I'm craving dopamine because I'm really bored. Hmm. That that is so fucking funny because I I've never understood that specific aspect of it as an ADHD. That's just more. So another thing that I've been kind of thinking about a lot these last two years is just like around mindset stuff and attitude stuff and kind of how I show up for things. And yeah, I had that same experience of just like I was I was, I was supposed to be having a nice pleasant walk out in the sunshine by myself, and then all of a sudden I noticed that my my heart is in my throat, and my palms are sweating because I'm literally imagining a hypothetical argument with a person that doesn't exist and getting so fucking worked up that I'm like physiologically uh, getting, getting like impacted by that. And it's just like, why are you doing this to yourself, man? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. The narratives, like all those little, like the storytelling and just like, and then you'll say something out loud to somebody who's actually thinking rationally about this little story that you've been going through in your head. And they'll be like, um, I don't really think that's exactly what was happening there. Cause you've just, <laughs> yeah, to your point, AJ, to like stave off the boredom and give yourself a little cheap and dirty dopamine hit. Cause you don't want to check Twitter. It's like, you yeah, just it's tell like, yourself a story. It's like, why did I, why am I the protagonist of this tiny Avengers movie that's going on in my head right now? It's like, maybe I should write it down. Oh, but I forgot. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But that, that is like realizing why you do it is kind of like, you know, I really should just call my mom. Thank you so much to our guest, AJ Candy, for appearing on the show and sharing his experiences, both um, uh, figuring out he has ADHD and learning how to kind of optimize his environments to uh, facilitate working around it. Yeah, it was really great chatting with AJ and it's yeah, it's amazing that people like, you know, when I when I looked at his uh, website and his resume, I'm still astounded at uh, just the incredible talent and um, expertise that the folks we're talking to. Like he's a rock star, right? Yeah. And and he mentions the specials on his on his website, like a message to you, Rudy. He's got that little gift. I'm like, I love this guy already. So, yeah, this is so great. that We, we had the chance to talk to him. Lots of great learning. I think something else that's really interesting is that um, all of this kind of self-directed research that AJ did about his workspace and, uh, you know, kind of human environments and all these kinds of things. It's really interesting because people kind of talk about um, 
The idea that ADHD people uh, are lazy or don't want to do work or whatever, but it's like, no, we're actually, in fact, willing to expend enormous amounts of energy at the drop of a hat for literally no reward other than our own interest, uh, which is, and, and I think this is a great example of that, of like how much research and reading and learning that AJ has done just kind of not only in the benefit of trying to optimize his own life, but just a lot of it is just interest. And I think that that's, if, if, if more of us can kind of figure out ways to harness those interests and get ourselves paid off of them, uh, I think that we're going to live happier lives as ADHD adults. Yeah, absolutely. And whether or not you choose to have a dog and that is entirely up to you. <laughs> I'll still judge you, but I'll understand getting judged in return. <laughs> Holy Shit, I Have ADHD was performed by Robbie McDonald, Jordan Lane, and AJ Candy. You can check him out on his website at ajcandy.com. If you have any feedback about the show, you can leave us a voicemail on our Anchor page, anchor.fm slash holy shit I have ADHD, or you can email us holy shit I have ADHD at gmail.com. 